You know, one of the things I love to do is just remind us of the ways in which God is working through us. Uh, if you're not careful, you can be like I so often am, where I can just get focused in on the moment and just kind of neglect or even forget how God is moving in our lives. And last week was really kind of an opportunity to do that. So last week, uh, first of all, I just got to say, I love being up here way better than down there. I love our kids, but I feel more comfortable preaching to you than trying to corral them all together. Uh, But it was just a joy last week. Last week, I got to serve our kids and and just to see the ways in which they are growing, the ways in which they are progressing. I know parents so often, it's, it's just hard, right? You, you get in the moment, you get zeroed in, you're just like, are they even growing? And just to be able to be with the little ones and just to see them respond, uh, even to the point that one little one was just able to give answer after answer after answer. It's just beautiful to see that. I know sometimes as parents, it's, uh, it's easy for us to think that our kids don't grasp much, but uh, a few weeks ago I, was in an op- I had an opportunity in one of our missional communities to just kind of get the kids together and teach, and it had been about a month. And as I gathered them together and I just said, hey, uh, can, can someone tell me what we talked about four weeks ago? Now, I won't do that to you, ask what was talked about last week, but it's just interesting because the kids remembered the kids could remember the truths about God from four weeks before. And so praise the Lord for that. He is doing a work in our kids, and I know it feels long sometimes, it feels hard sometimes, and just like the road is tough. And I just want to encourage us this morning, the Lord is working in them, and let's just keep pressing on and, and trust the Lord with their care. So let me go to the Lord in prayer, praising Him for the way that he is working on our kids and just asking that he would continue to do that work, especially in us as parents. And then anyone who, who uh, maybe you don't have kids or your kids are a lot older, we, we still need your help to just be in our lives and helping us to raise our kids in the ways of the Lord. So let me go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we, uh, just the, the evidence of grace that we've seen in the way that you are working in the kids here at Sunbury City Church. Lord, it's a joy to have them. Lord, it's a joy to know that that we can just love them and point them back to you. And we just pray that we can do that more so. We pray that you would continue to work in their lives. Would you bring them to faith? God, would you do a mighty work that they might know you, believe in you, and live their lives entirely for you? And Father, as parents, would you encourage us to stay the course, to focus on you and teaching our kids about you, pressing them towards hope and life in you. And for those who do not yet have kids, we pray that they would see their role as a cheerleader for parents, as a help for parents. And for those who have kids who are older, we pray that they might uh, see their role as having wisdom for those of us with younger kids on how to point them to hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we turn our attention to our pastors this morning, we ask that you would work in us. We ask that you would uh, help by your spirit to show us what you have for us this morning. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, 
Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you don't have a Bible, there will be one in the pew back in front of you. If you're sitting in one of the, the box, uh, box rows, we're going to be in Psalm 139. That's about halfway through the Bible. If you literally just open up halfway, you're going to be in the book of Psalms. And we're going to go to 139. We've been on this journey from Psalm 135 to 150 kind of as a bridge because this spring we looked at this idea of joy and how it's found in Jesus Christ alone and this fall we're going to look at who God actually is and so these Psalms are a nice bridge between the two to just show us how we can have joy by knowing who God is. It was about probably 15 years ago now, uh, I was in college, I was working full-time also in college, uh, about five hours away from where my parents grew up. I grew up in California, in central California, and I was going to school in Los Angeles area. I remember one Saturday in particular, after work, I had plans of going home to visit my family for a couple of days. And so we were kind of light on work that day, and I begged my manager to let me go early so I could get there on time and just kind of surprise my family. So I rush home, shower, change, pack my truck, and get on the road. If you know California terrain at all, what you'll see is Los Angeles is kind of rolling hills, and then you get to this mountain pass. It's about an hour drive through the mountain pass that gets up to 4,000 feet elevation. So just imagine these mountain peaks. They're about 2,000. Twice as tall is where the road is. That's not the mountain peak. That's where the road is. Okay, and so I remember going through this mountain peak, this mountain pass called the Grapevine. And if you know anything of California, you know that the grapevine is hot, ugly, and essentially a desert. Think Afghanistan. That's where it's at, right? And so I remember driving through there in the heat of the summer, and this is like the worst place you could ever break down because there's nothing around. I remember getting to the last town in the grapevine called Gorman, and then from Gorman until you hit the bottom of the valley floor is about 30-minute drive. And I remember getting past Gorman, and all of a sudden, my temperature gauge just starts going up and up and up and up. It's like 100 degrees out. I don't care if it's a dry heat. If you've ever been at 100 degrees, it's hot. And so I was rolling down my windows, turning off the AC, turning off my radio, trying to cut every electronic on the truck possible. And then as you come out for like the last 10 minutes, it's just kind of this downward slope. I remember just coasting, doing everything I could to just coast all the way out. And then you hit the valley floor and you're like, ah, finally. And there's 30 more minutes to the next city. You're like, oh no. I remember if I just get to the valley floor, there's a gas station, and, and then about 10 minutes up the road, there's another gas station, and then if I just get to Bakersfield, which is like a massive city in PA standards, if I just get there, I can get help. I remember coming out, and my truck was doing fine. I just passed the first gas station, and the gauge starts going up higher and higher. Oh, no. Just got to get to the next one. I, I pull off, and as I pull into the gas station, the lights go off, and it is just boiling over, and I just shut the car off. 
And immediately I call my brother who's a mechanic and he calls my dad and my dad calls me and, and they just say, hey, just hang tight. We're going to go get a trailer from U-Haul and we're going to pick you up. Now, mind you, they're three hours away. He said, just hang tight. Just, is there anywhere that you can go? I'm like, it's a gas station. That's all I've got. Just hang tight. And so they go and get the trailer. And I'm get my stuff, and I remember just sitting in a bench there, and, and I open up my computer, and I'm listening to a, a sermon, and get done with that, and I start listening to another sermon, and get done with that, and halfway through, here comes my dad and brother with a trailer. And they load up my truck, and we're talking, and my dad's just like, so how was it? Wasn't too bad. And, and in his mind, he's like, my, my 20-something-year-old is going to be kind of freaking out at this moment, and he's like, What? I'm like, yeah, it wasn't too bad. I, I had stuff to, to do. I knew that you were coming. And what? Like, you were okay waiting for three hours? I'm like, yeah, it, it didn't go long. It was interesting. In that moment, I was able to have peace. I was able to be at ease. I was able to have comfort because I knew my dad was coming. You see, I knew who my dad was. I knew that my dad is a man of character, a man of integrity, and when he says he's going to come, he will come. When he says he will be there to help, he will do everything in his power under heaven to be there to help. Even to this day, if I need something, I can call him and he will drop everything to answer what is necessary to get me going. You see, I know who my dad is, and that put me at ease and gave me joy and rest in a troubled time. Now, I know even in a room like this that, that we have different feelings towards our dad. Some of us, you're just like, you don't, you don't know my dad. I could call, but he wouldn't be there. He's not a man of integrity, not a man you can trust. And some of us are just like, man, that's my dad. And some of us are just struggling because we love our dad, and yet he's not here. And yet this morning, what we're going to see is no matter the kind of picture that you have of your earthly father, we have a greater heavenly father if we trust in Jesus Christ. If we have entrusted our lives to Jesus Christ, we have a heavenly father that when we know who he is, we can experience joy. In fact, joy comes by knowing and loving our Lord, by knowing and loving who our God is in heaven, the Father, that when we see him and are focused on him, everything else in life just kind of calms down. Everything else in life becomes peaceful. That's what our psalmist is going to show us, is that, that we need to be a people who are focused on our Father, to, that see our Father, know him, love him. So we can begin to be at ease and at rest in him. And so with that, let's go ahead and read this psalm this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are looking, as I said earlier, we're looking at these psalms, and what we've seen so far is that these psalms are a great picture or a great path for us to learn how to pray and how to worship the Lord. What we see in the book of Psalms is we see Psalms of praise that we're going to look at this morning where we're just able to see the character of God and just worship God for who he is. And then we see psalms of lament and sorrow where life is just hard and we just plead with God for help. And then we see psalms of hope, those psalms where we're longing for the coming king to come and rescue us and give us life with him forever. And so these psalms are a great way for us to just pray back to the Lord. And the psalm that we see this morning is actually a famous psalm, one of those that you kind of find on a coffee mug, because it's a psalm that shows us much about the character 
of who God actually is. And this morning, I want us to look at three characteristics of God and one response we should have. That I believe if we know this, and if we come to love this God, it will really be an anchor for us during times of trial and during times of tribulation. And so let's go ahead and look at these three characteristics. And the first characteristic is that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. This word simply means all-knowing. Omni is all, and uh, the last part is from the word science of, of knowing. And so God is all-knowing. There there's nothing in this universe that God does not already know now. There's nothing that will happen in the future that God does not already know. He doesn't have what some people believe is kind of this middle knowledge. Some people believe that that God just knows all of the possibilities. And he kind of directs things to happen in a certain way so that his idea of what would happen will actually happen. That's not what we see here. We see that God knows every single thing in the correct order that it's going to play out. And that can be good, and that can be terrifying. We're going to see that in just a moment. Look with me at verse 1. We see right away, the psalmist starts, that you have searched and known me. It's this idea of, of kind of like a gold miner. So uh, about 150, 170 years ago now, many from the east and Midwest moved to the West Coast in search for gold. If you ever go to the mountains of the West Coast, you, you can actually go to these mining towns and, and grab a pan and, and put some dirt and water in it and just kind of pan for gold. They're looking to strike it rich. They're searching every aspect of that dirt because they're wanting to find gold. And the psalmist says that's the kind of way uh, and the kind of knowledge that God has of you and I. He searches intently. He knows everything about us. There's not a single spot in our life that is hidden from us. And in fact, he tells us more about what this knowledge looks like. Look at verse 2. He says, he knows when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, if you go to the top of the psalm, there's this little, like, these little letters up there that kind of tell you a little bit about the psalm. That's actually added afterwards. And we don't know if that's accurate or not. But here it says it's a psalm of David. Now David was king, but he's also a shepherd. And I can just imagine for a moment that as David is out in the field all alone, it's just him and the flock, and he sits down, and he takes a nap, and he gets up, and it feels like he is all alone. He is all by himself. And he says, God knows it. I'm not alone. He saw when I sat down. He saw when I rose up. He knows every single thing 
even when you are all by yourself. And then he goes further to say that he discerns our thoughts from afar. That he doesn't just know everything about us. He doesn't just know everything we do. He knows everything that goes on in our minds. Anybody feel comfortable if I were to take five minutes and just kind of record the last day of what was in your mind, type it up, and throw it up on the screen behind us? My guess is no one, right? I I wouldn't want that. And so you can see that this, this can be good. This can be terrifying. It can be good because the reality is is that you are not worse than what Jesus already knows to be true of you. Do you understand that? So often we feel like we are so far from God and that there's no hope from God to have a life with him because we are incredibly sinful, more sinful than what even he knows. And yet what we see in the cross of Christ is the reality that Jesus came because he already knows we're sinful. He knows everything about, he even knows the sins you've committed that you have no idea you committed. And he died for them. And he conquered them. And he came back to life and now he offers forgiveness for them. And so this is a beautiful thing, because even in our worst state, God knows us, and he loves us, and he invites us in. And yet this is terrifying, because if we don't know Jesus, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that that means he knows everything, and everything is fair game for his just judgment on our lives. And so you can kind of see the, the tension in the passage, right? That, that's either a good thing or, or it's a terrifying thing. But then the psalmist goes even further to, to kind of describe it. He doesn't just know the actions that we do. He doesn't just know the thoughts. He actually knows the thoughts and the words before we do. Look at verse 4, or verse uh, 3. He says, you search out my path, am I lying down? You're acquainted with all my ways. There's nothing that God doesn't know about our lives. Then verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. Wow. Even before we speak, even before we know what we are about to say, God knows it. It is in his mind. Just the the magnitude of who God is. That there's nothing in this world that he does not know. God is not surprised by anything. You know, so often we live with anxiety or we live with fear because of the unknown. God doesn't have those, those emotions. Because he knows everything that's going to happen. That's good, church. The other day, we, as we were in Washington, D.C., uh, we kind of ran into a little bit of a hiccup. Uh, there was something called a flash flood. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, it's going to kind of give us a little bit of warning and then we'll be fine. Well, apparently, you don't want to be in a flash flood warning around a tidal basin. If you've ever been to D.C., there's the monuments, and right around the monuments, there's this massive lake, if you will. 
Those two things do not go well together. And so we got caught up in the middle of a storm, uh, in the middle of torrential downpour. The, the lake water started overlapping on the sidewalk, and we're rushing. The only thing we can think of is we, we just got to get to the Jefferson Memorial. It's higher ground. We'll be safer. And in that moment, just having to tell the family, having to tell my boys, hey, just trust. Let's go. And even talking to my little one, just seeing kind of the, the fear in that moment. And just saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? You see, because God knows all things, we can run to him in scary times and just trust him. And just rest in him. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to know everything. We just need to know that he does. And what rest and joy that can bring. The psalmist then moves on and he says in verse 5 that, that God hymns him in and, and behind and before his hand is laid upon him. It, it's almost as if God has so much knowledge about everything that he has then taken a piece of fabric and kind of uh, put this fabric all around the psalmist. That, that everything that the psalmist does is now guarded or protected. That before, behind everything. God has knowledge about all that's going to happen to the psalmist. And notice how the psalmist responds in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I can't attain it. It's as if the psalmist has seen who God is, seen his massive knowledge, and he is just broken down. He is just uh, torn apart to, to just realize that he can't even compare to the knowledge of God. You know, so often I think one of the ways we struggle in our Christian life is because we don't know everything, even when it comes to God. So often we just want to know everything about God, and, and that's good to learn. But sometimes we try to learn things that the Bible is silent on. And it, as a result, we try to be God. We want to dissect God. We want to try to understand every aspect of God because we want to have the same knowledge of God. Same knowledge that God has. And Psalmist just backs up and says, hey, this is too wonderful. I, I, I can't know everything. He's just in awe over who God is. Church, are, are you in awe over who God is? Are you in awe over the knowledge that he has, over the character that he has? Just realizing that he is far greater than you? Or are you trying to attain to his level? Just unable discontent because there's truths about him that you just can't reconcile. The reality is if you could, then you would be God, not him. And psalmist just accepts his position and just says, wow, Lord, you're awesome. But again, that's, that's terrifying, right? There's, there's, this, there's this awe like, like going to the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon and, and getting to the edge and you're just you're amazed, right? You're amazed because in one step, like, you know, everything can be ended. Like, you know, one misstep, 
you can tumble to your death, and yet you're amazed because of the beauty and the grandeur of the place. And it feels like the psalmist is just kind of on the edge and saying, Lord, this is terrifying. And yet this is beautiful. I wonder this morning, as you think about the knowledge of God, are you in awe of it or are you terrified of it? You see, oftentimes, even if we are followers of Christ, we can be terrified of the knowledge of God because we're trying to hide sin from God. We have these pet sins that if we just kind of keep over here, we think that we can kind of keep it away from God. We can have our foot in the camp of God and serve God and love God and yet still have our foot in this camp of our sin. And if we can kind of keep them separate, then we can figure out life. And yet it creates all sorts of unrest, all sorts of discomfort in our lives, all sorts of uh, just, the, the, uh, uh, just a teeter-totter in our life, if you will. And the reality is because he knows everything, he's inviting us to just bring that to him. Because he already knows it, we are invited through the cross to just bring it to Jesus and just ask for his forgiveness in that sin. So that his knowledge wouldn't be terrifying, but it would be inviting. And then the psalmist shows us the second characteristic of God. The second characteristic is that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. Now notice what he says here in verse 7. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And then he kind of lists all of these places that he thinks that he can somehow get outside of the presence of God. Like if you were to walk outside this building, I would have no idea what you would do. No idea what you are doing in that moment because you're out of my presence. And so the psalmist just wonders, is there a place I can go out of the presence of God? And he says in verse 8, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, the place of the dead, if I go there, God, even you are there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning... You get up in the morning. I, I was up early. Any, anybody like to get up early in the morning? Okay, it's so like three of us. Okay. So the rest of you have never experienced this joy, right? You get up, everybody else, like yourselves, are all sleeping. It's quiet, it's just the birds chirping. It feels like you're all alone. And he's saying you're not. God's there. But then notice what he says. I think this, to me, this is like the most beautiful part. In verse 9, second half, he says, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, we think of the sea as kind of this uh, place that we can go fishing, boating, uh, something that we've somehow tamed a little bit. But if we're, if we're really honest, uh, we haven't tamed a whole lot because I think maybe one of us have actually gone so far from the shore that there's no way of getting back other than boat or helicopter. That's a terrifying spot to be in. To be in a part of the ocean or sea that you have no control on and the waves are crashing upon you and you don't know what to do. And often the sea was a place of chaos, 
a place of evil, and it's where the great sea monsters that we kind of get in our myths today, the great sea monsters lived because that was the place of the demonic realm. And notice what the psalmist says, if I go to the uttermost parts, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Church, did you just see and hear what the psalmist said? Even if you are in a chaotic place, even if you are in a place that feels out of control, it feels like evil is winning, it feels like there is no hope whatsoever, God is there. God is leading. God is guiding. God is directing. The psalmist continues to show us. I mean, he just says even in verse 11 and 12, he says, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. If it feels as if everything around you, like all the lights have just turned off. A couple days ago when we were, I can't remember where we were at. Oh, we were at the Museum of the Bible, and we were doing one of these uh, uh, simulators, if I remember correctly. And as we were doing that simulator, all the lights turned off. You can kind of hear some of the kids going, ah! Right? Scary. Even if it feels like all the lights in your life have just turned off and it's just hopeless, it's dark, you don't know where to turn. Look at what the psalmist says about God in verse 12. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. That's comforting. Because even in those places where you're just like, I feel all alone, I feel hopeless, I don't know how to do this, I don't know where to go, I, it, just, it just feels like my world is caving in on me. He says, it's not hopeless to God. He's in the middle of it. And he can flip on the light switch quickly. Even the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This past week I read a story. If you remember, probably, I want to say six or seven years ago now, there was a group of uh, about 300 school girls in Nigeria that were captured by Boko Haram. Does anyone remember that story? This is about, yeah, a few of us, right? Seven years ago, uh, they were at a Christian school and they were captured and brought out into the jungle uh, really to not be heard from ever again. And then about a year or two ago, 80 of them were released. They started telling their story. You know what got them through those years of being in captivity? It was reminding themselves of what God's word had said. It was when the guards were gone, lowly and quietly singing songs of praise to God to remind each other, we're not alone. God sees, God hears, and God cares. I can't help but for some of us this morning that we might need to hear that message. I don't know what you're going through. But God sees, he knows, 
He cares. And he has the ability to change it all. So we need to plead with him. We need to go to him. We need to put our hope and trust in him rather than in our own ways of escape, rather than our own methods of of trying to relieve the pain that, that actually just adds more pain to it. Instead, just go to him knowing that he is there with us. And then we see the third character of the Lord, and that is that God is omnipotent. That just means that he is all-powerful. 1966, Time Magazine came out with an issue, and on the cover of that issue, it asks a simple question that I believe has been the mantra over the last 70 years, 60 years of our life. And that question is, is God dead? And really before then and after that point, we have been as a culture on this cycle, on this move to try to prove that God is in fact dead. And the psalmist is reminding us here, he's not. He is powerful, even over the most powerful structures in our world, he has power over them, even to a point that this is not some theoretical power, but this is an intimate, personal power that you and I experience. Notice what he says in verse 13, he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What's he saying? He's saying, in my own conception until my birth, God, you were there. You made me. And you made me wonderful. Because I'm in God's image. Genesis 1 tells us that we're created in the image of God. And so he says that that you have made me. You've wonderfully made me. And so what that means is that you and I matter. You and I have value. That's why all of the the cultural talk today just doesn't make sense. I don't want to make a political statement, but there's a reality that we can't be about blue lives and we can't be about black lives. We've got to be a people that care about all life. And and I know some people kind of hijack that to, to be dismissive. I just mean that we should be about police reform and we should be about lowering the homicide rates that are skyrocketing in our country right now. Because every person is created in the image of God and every person matters to God. And so that means even from abortion to euthanasia, all of life from beginning to end, we should be a people who care about every stage of life. Because it all matters to the Lord. And he says that in verse 14, he says that God's works are wonderful and his soul knows it well. Church, do you know the works of God? Do you know them well? And he tells us, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. From beginning to end, God knows our life. He knows the first day, he knows all the days, and he knows our death day. How freeing is that? Do you realize that, that our God does not drive an ambulance? Do you know what an ambulance driver does? He gets the call and he shows up on the scene and he has to somehow figure out what happened and what he needs to do to provide comfort and to be able to uh, help fix the problem. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He was there before, he was there during, and he will be there long after. He was a part of the entire process of our lives. And so when you feel out of control, you can rest and know that God is in control. When you feel powerless, you can rest and know that God has all power. And we know this because of the cross of Christ. We know this because when Jesus died, it looked like he was out of control, right? And yet in that moment, God was orchestrating it for the salvation of all humans who might believe in him. And in that moment, it looked like Jesus had absolutely no power against the world. And yet, when he died and rose from the dead, he actually showed that he has power over everything, even death. And so that means that I don't have to have my life put together. I don't have to be perfect because he is. I don't have to be powerful or better than the rest because he is. And I don't know of anything more freeing than that, to just rest in who God is. But how does this change us? How does this make us different? That's what the psalmist ends on. And as the psalmist ends, it shows, the psalmist shows us that we must identify with God. That our response to the character of God is that we actually attach ourselves to who God is and we identify with the God of the universe. Notice in verses 17 and 18, he's just amazed at who God is. He says, how precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. He's saying, man, there's no way I can even begin to count the thoughts of God. And notice what he says, though. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say it's too hard. He says, I awake and I am still with you. Despite the vastness, he's saying, every moment of every day that I'm awake, I'm with you, God. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, right? He says there in verse 17 that we are to pray without ceasing, that every moment should be a moment in which we are to pray and have relationship and communion with God. We should be a people who are about this relationship and about this communion with the Lord. And then notice what he says at the end. He talks about wickedness. He talks about the distress that he's in. Verse 19, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. He's in some, some sort of anguish. And instead of taking it upon himself, he runs back to the Lord. 
But notice the anguish she's in. I don't think we have this kind of anguish today. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do you hear that? He sees these people speaking evil of God, and rather than, uh, rather than acquiescing to what they say, rather than just kind of going and, and playing the game and, and being friends with them, he actually attaches himself to God, and he says, because they're your enemy, they're now my enemy. Do you see that? He loves God so much that he's willing to suffer what other people think of him because he cares about aligning himself with God. And then he goes even further in verse 21 to say, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Church, Jesus Christ told us that if we were to follow him, we must be committed to him. We must take up our cross and give our entire lives to him. And if we do that, people will hate us. The question is, are you more concerned about people liking you or are you more concerned about Jesus Christ being pleased with you? So often I think that we make decisions because we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And the psalmist just says, man, when we know the character of God, we want to be committed to God in all things and in all ways. And then he ends and he just says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Someone just says, Lord, you know me. You know my heart. You know everything about me. Please, please help me. If there's any way that grieves you, any way that goes against you, please root it out. Church, is that a prayer of yours? God, show me my heart. Show me where I don't line up. Show me where I'm not obeying you. Show me where I rob you of glory. Show me this that I may confess it. Do you do that? Because if we do, we begin to experience rest. If we do, we begin to experience joy. If we do, we begin to experience the power and the love of Christ working in and through us. And so the question for us this morning is, do you know your dad? If you believe in Jesus Christ, do you know your heavenly father? Do you study him? Do you learn about him? But do you have a personal knowledge of him? And are you trusting in him? Are you putting all of your hope, all of your trust in him and him alone? Because when you do, you begin to experience joy and peace in life. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for just the truth that you've shown us. Thank you that uh, just your character, Lord, that we saw how you know all things and you are present everywhere and you are all powerful and that our lives matter. Every single one of us in this room matters to you. And so, Father, help us to have your heart to be a people who are committed to you, a people who are committed to your glory, a people who want to see the the world revolutionized with the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, that we would want to see lives changed. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work even in us right now, we ask in your son's name. Amen.